Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hello. Welcome to the History Hit World Wars podcast, a podcast dedicated to that turbulent period in history between 1914 and 1945. I'm James Rogers, and this week we're joined by an old friend of mine, Dr. Patrick Bury a former captain in the British military, author of Call Sign Hades, and one of the presenters of the hit National Geographic show, Nazi Megastructures. We thought we'd get him on to talk about his top five Nazi megastructures. I'm currently sat here in Denmark, not far from the Danish coast, not far from the Atlantic Wall, and it's actually here that we start, because it was Patrick's experience as a military officer and infantryman that got producers to bring him on the show to tell them about the fortifications far further down the Atlantic Wall in northern France at a place that would come to be known as Omaha Beach. Hi, Paddy. Thanks for coming on the show. Ah, James, thanks for having us. It's great to be on. Now, you've appeared in every series of the hit National Geographic show, Nazi Megastructures. And in that show, everything from U-boat bases, V-rocket bases, super tanks and jet caves, everything's been touched upon. But today, you're going to give us a rundown of your top five from your time on the show. First, I've got to ask, because I'm really keen to know... How on earth did you get into Nazi megastructures? I was fairly lucky, I suppose, James. I was probably a couple of years out of the army where I'd been an infantry captain. And I'd written a book about my time in Afghanistan called Call Sign Hades. And I think it was a result of that. They picked up that I was out there and they'd come up with a new idea for a show, which was basically to take National Geographic's megastructures but examine the fortifications of the Second World War from a German perspective. So it was really about sort of the archaeological and structural side of the Second World War, rather than like just the campaigns and telling the story of Germany's efforts through those structures. And one of the first ones they went to was the Atlantic Wall, 15,000 fortifications stretching from Norway to Spain on that. And they wanted to look at the story of D-Day and Omaha within that program. And so they really needed somebody with infantry experience to be able to chat about the defences from a German perspective. And that was one of the novel things about an English language program because it wanted to tell the German perspective. All the characters are either German or Axis 
So that was it. I was asked would I do it. I was screened and all that for the first one. They wanted to make sure I knew what I was talking about. And then we went out in, I think it was like April 2013. And the one thing I can remember is absolutely freezing. The wind chill on that beach was unbelievable at that time of year. So I was inappropriately dressed, as they say, but it was great. And we learned so much. Some of the other contributors are fantastic. They had a German doctor. Peter Lieb from Sandhurst there, who was talking about some of the German daily life on the Atlantic Wall before D-Day. And then I came in to do the combat piece for Omaha. And they focused in on this position near Colville. It's one of the famous ones called Widerstandnest 62, which basically means Strong Point 62. And it was a cluster of small bunkers, basically on a bluff overlooking a draw which came off the beach. And the Allies, in particular, the 116th Regiment of the US 1st Division, had to get off that beach in the early hours of June the 6th, 44. And it focused in on that. And that position was very hard to crack. And it was responsible for a huge amount of the US casualties on Omaha that day. And there's a story which is unverified that one of the gunners in Widerstand Nest 62 was Heinrich Sverlo. He became known as the monster of Omaha after he published in his memoirs that he was a machine gunner there. One of the few who kept firing the whole way through the fight and he claimed he killed over a thousand or made over a thousand US casualties from his position. So it was kind of of historic importance and we just focused in on that and talked through how they sorted out those defences, what the German perspective on it was, what they were trying to do. And then flipping it again to be what was it like for the US guys with the ramps drop and you got to get up that beach as fast as possible and there's just murderous fire being poured down onto you. That's astonishing, isn't it? To think that you take out a thousand men running up the beaches. It's almost unfathomable, unbelievable. But this was one hell of a structure. We're talking about the Atlantic Wall here, which is number five on our list. And this thing stretched over 3,000 miles, right? It was from northern Norway and down all the way to the border with France and Spain. Massive, massive. Obviously, the whole thing wasn't one long wall, but it was strong points. And some were stronger than others and other bits were unfinished. And so the focus in the program, as it sort of went on, was talking about how different parts of that fortification interlock. So it wasn't just about having these big guns and massive bunkers to return naval fire if they need them. It was also about having tank hedgehogs so that when tanks tried to get up the beaches, they'd get tipped sideways and the mines attached to poles so that when the landing craft came in, they'd hit the mines they thought they'd want to land at high tide so they'd have less time to get up the beach. So these are all in the kind of low tide area to blow up landing craft. So yeah, it was all about a system really to reinforce the structure of the defences. Seeing as National Geographic drew upon you because of your military background and your tactical and strategic expertise in this area, maybe you can be our war expert here as well then, because I remember that quote by Rommel who stated that the war is going to be won or lost on the beaches and we'll only have one chance to stop the enemy, and that's while he's in the water struggling to get ashore. Do you think that they should have invested so much time and effort into that Atlantic wall? Personally, yeah. You know, I think you had the right idea. The problem is you don't know where they're going to land and they can land anywhere within that 3,000 miles in theory. And then you've got all the Allied deception, Fortitude North, Fortitude South going on. And you've got top spies like Garbo, direct lines of Hitler saying, oh, the first landing is only going to be a feint. But Rommel was coming from the perspective that he'd been in the desert war. He'd seen what Allied air power could do. Runstead, who was Rommel's boss, was more like, uh, yeah, you're probably right, but this isn't the desert. We can move our tanks at night. There's lots more cover from air attack. And in theory, our Luftwaffe will be able to put up more of a fight. 
I can see where both of them are coming from, but personally, as an infantier, it's such an easy target if you're on a high ground and people have to come towards you on the beach. But even if you look at Omaha, like the defences of Omaha, yes, they were fairly horrific, but US troops had got round them, mainly by chance, just trying to get off the bloody beaches within 45 minutes in some places. And in the harder places, within four or five hours. So it didn't really work. And that was because the absolute heavy weight of fire that the Allies were able to concentrate and isolate the battlefield as well through the bombing. It really cut off the communications, cut off the reinforcements coming through. So I think personally, I would have edged towards Rommel at the time. Whether anything could stop it, that's the point. At the time, anything could stop it. You got the 12th SS Division stationed down in southern France and there the reserve. 12th SS, right, or Panzer, been down there for like three or four months refitting and training. They're not as strong as they were because they've been chewed up in the Eastern Front, but they're still good. And they've got all these heavy tanks. And the whole thing was, we can get them to the beaches in 24 to 36 hours. And in reality, because the resistance rose up in coordination with the plans, I think it took them over two weeks. And they never got to the beaches anyway. There's that kind of thing. Ultimately, what could you do? If the Germans could have massed all their combat power on the right beach, yeah, they could have caused a real problem. There's an interesting story, a sub-story there, where a German lighter panzer formation actually made it to the Orne bridgehead in the British sector by night of the 6th of June. And then a bunch of gliders went overhead, British gliders in the next wave. And he was basically ready to sweep down the beaches above them with his tanks. And that would have been very difficult to deal with. But the next glider landings went in and he was worried that he was going to get surrounded. So he pulled back. It's very difficult to call that one in hindsight, I think. Yeah, hindsight is a wonderful thing. But by the sounds of it, that sheer saturation of Allied power was just key to breaking through. And also the stories of those brave individuals who would just take the assault up to the bunkers and remove those machine gun posts with heavy losses, of course. Mm, absolutely, yeah. General Coat arrived on Omaha and the attack was stolen. And he turned around to the GIs who were huddling under the beach wall in one of the areas. And he said, there's two kinds of people on this beach, the dead and the gonna die. So we got to get off the beach. And he actually led assaults with his pistol, apparently. So a bit of a famous story there. But speaking of wartime leaders and bunkers, let's move on to number four in the list. A seamless link. <laughs> the Felsen Nest. Now, not many people may have heard of this one. So what was the Felsen Nest? Yeah, that's it. The Felsen Nest. And I had no idea about it when I did it. And one of the nice things about doing Nazi megastructures, once it got up ahead of steam and went into the second series, was that they had a team of researchers picking out areas that would look good visually and had a good story. That's what they were basically looking for. And the Felsen Nest was pretty much unknown. And the German authorities didn't want us going to film there either. It took a long time, I remember, to get the pass. You have to get passes, you know. And because they're quite rightfully as well worried about the rise of the far right, they didn't want people going to what was Hitler's former headquarters for the French campaign of 1940. They didn't want us going there really and filming. But eventually they rescinded. And it's in a sort of slight hilltop forest location just outside a suburban German town in West Germany. And it was his forward headquarters for the invasion of France. It's blown up now because when they retreated back in 44, they blew it up. It was relatively small compared to the Wolf's Lair. It was in the Wolf's Lair episode, which is all about his eastern headquarters in Prussia. But it was fascinating because it was all to do with Hitler's mindset. You'd go around and you'd see one and a half metres thick concrete and gas proof. Because the two things in the First World War that Hitler had learned was that concrete was good and that if you're making concrete buildings, they needed to be gas proof. So it all had gas vents and you could still see them. And then there was the situation room, which was, you can still see the posts of it. It had been wooden, so that was gone. 
but that was where they actually had their updates and their briefs and Hitler issued his orders or however much because it was Rommel who was leading the charge there however much he was actually listening to Hitler is another thing but Hitler thought he was in charge and he was in parts of it but that's where he would issue his orders and the rest of the guys would coordinate and crack on following the Fuhrer's will I mean that's one hell of a thing isn't it to go and to visit the place that was Hitler's Führer headquarters on the battlefield, the place where he would, at least perhaps, like you say, think he'd be leading battles from. Were you able to get inside at all, or was the building itself just a sight to see? So it's a series of bunkers, which have basically been blown up with HE from the interior, so most of them have collapsed in. But you can get in there, and there's still a few little bits and pieces to see, like vents and stuff like that, and you can wander around what is left. But I suppose the most important thing about this is this was actually Hitler's headquarters at the time. That's it. Fortifications are more intact in other places. But the uniqueness of this is that this was Hitler's headquarters and it's not well known. Very few people know about it as far as I was concerned. Anyway, I'd never heard of it. So yeah, that was a good one and definitely opened my eyes into what was out there even in the West. With that in mind, actually, let's move on to the next one, which is another example that people might not be so familiar with. And this is Hitler's Siegfried Line, which was also known as the West Wall, opposite the French Maginot Line, the German Maginot Line, I guess. What was it like going to see this one hell of a fortified wall? Precisely, yeah. And that was an interesting because we went down with the crew in West Germany near Aachen and I'd never been around there. Very forested, very beautiful, very traditional German in the towns and houses, that sort of design. It doesn't actually feel like it's changed that much actually since the 30s and 40s in many respects. And we were in the forest which the Siegfried line ran through. We talked a lot again how the interlocking defences work. Here you had famous pictures of dragon's teeth these concrete thick bollards, but about eight thick. And just like a line of them running for miles and zigzagging the odd time through fields and stuff like this. And the idea was that tanks weren't going to get through that at all. And then complementing that dragon's teeth network were these intact strong points on hills in forests, really well laid out. The positions themselves would have had like two to three fighting gun slots. They're all mutually supporting so they can help each other if one is attacked and they cover each other's weak points and stuff like that. Very difficult to unlock, really well sighted. And we focused in on the Americans. Again, another lesser known battle, the Battle of Hurtland Forest, which was incredibly bloody. Even then, it might be the bloodiest battle the US Army fought in the 20th century, at least. And really, to very little effect, it was fought in winter 44. The idea was they could basically do a pincer movements with the British further north and the Americans pushing through southwest Germany. But the terrain and the defences were just too strong and the Americans got absolutely mullered again and it was a really tough, difficult slog. And that was just really interesting from that perspective again and a sort of forgotten battle that I didn't know about. I had very decent knowledge of the Second World War, never really knew about it. And one of the cool things was we walked along a track. They'd had to try and concrete some of the tracks that got so muddy and there was a Sherman tank track in this road that had been left there. So that was pretty good. But like compared to Felsenest, those bunkers were pristine. And just really interesting to walk around and see how they worked and what kind of caliber guns they would have where. If you've had infantry training and then you see these things, it's kind of like working at a puzzle, you know? Oh yeah, right, yeah, I can see what they're thinking there. I see why they did that. Oh yeah, that's smart. Yeah, that's not, this isn't so smart. Why did they do that? Maybe they didn't have the resources there. That kind of thing. 
But you know what's fascinating? There are all this building structure that goes on just because the way the battle happens. So few of them are used often in terms of the heat of a battle. And you can tell that a lot of the time from the splash marks from the weapons that have fired at them. So you can also plot how the Americans attacked a position. Looking at, right, they came up here, they cleared this. Okay, yeah, you can see that. Then you can see the bullet marks there. Oh, they actually had to come in here and fire where they were just being careful. They brought tanks up here to take that one out. That is interesting because with your infantry training, you can almost read the narrative of the battle that happened there from those shadows that are left over 70, almost 80 years later. And you relate to it as well when you see the zigzag slit trenches. And, and we knew one of the, because this is what Nazi megastructures did, the team, they picked a German character like an ordinary soldier and you followed him through the episode. And so we knew he was stationed in this area and you're there looking at a slit trench that they would have manned and had a machine gun on and used to take cover from artillery coming in. So you really do get down to the nitty gritty and lived history. It was a real honour and a eye opener. What was life like for a soldier who was stationed in somewhere like the Siegfried Line? Because you've got the worry in 44 of forces drawing towards you, but also you're close to your supplies, you're able to perhaps live relatively well, not in too much hardship. Were they well stocked? Were they well fed? Were they well supplied? And were they ready for the Allied invasion? Well, in Herken anyway, we didn't really come across much... Germany is resource poor at this stage. And so they are struggling in terms of war winning weapons and things like that. But there was certainly no evidence that we saw of them being underfed or anything like that or running out of ammunition, not at all. They were fairly well trained, fairly well prepared. And they had the huge advantage, these positions. If you're trying to attack uphill in a thickly wooded forest, how close can you get before you actually see them and they open up on you with everything? Now how do you crack that nut? So the Germans had this great advantage that, yeah, as long as they were getting enough food, which I think they were, they had enough ammunition, yeah. And they're starting to fight for their own territory too. So that sort of cohesive and morale elements kicks in too. They're pretty determined. And they were confident because if you look at the terrain there, if you're an infantry or artilleryman, you're like, yeah, we can dominate this. We are in the ascendancy here. They're going to have to scrap tooth and nail. And it becomes a bit more like the First World War battles to a lot of extent. It's just very difficult to break down those defensive networks and the whole area favours the defensive and therefore if you're a German there I think you're like yeah we're going to hold these guys as long as we've got enough ammunition. You're absolutely right it does almost sound like a first world war kind of battle a entrenched war of attrition just bloodily going at each other trying to take those scraps of ground. How did the Americans and the Allies get through? Well they didn't. <laughs> <laughs> right. They didn't. They went round in the end. They just went, oh, God, this is a disaster. So that's the thing. That's why no one knows about it, because they basically got chewed up and spat out. So they made very little ground, and hence why it's not in the great annals of war successes. So it's probably a failure, really. The big lesson is don't go into wooded hills and try to fight a dug-in enemy. I think they yeah. teach that at war school anyway. But you think it was one that we would um, probably know off by heart anyway. You would, wouldn't you? Don't walk into woods where there's heavy German defences. Tantamount to the Maginot Line. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So let's go from these lessons from the battlefield, how not to attack, well, quite monumental Nazi megastructures hidden in forests, seems like a pretty clear lesson, through to, well, the Nazi leadership. Because number two on your list isn't strictly a Nazi megastructure, because it dates back to the 1300s, but it's Wievelberg's castle, and this was the home of the SS, is that right? That's right, yeah. And a very interesting one. And you're right, not a Nazi battlefield structure, but also very important in terms of the SS as a sort of organisation and supporting structure of the Nazi regime. And Wevelsberg, as you said, it was appropriated by Himmler and became the spiritual home of the SS. And that episode just went round the castle, which is a very old structure, but there's still a lot of evidence, because it's not that long ago, about how the SS operated there and basically delved into the ethos and the mysticism of what Himmler envisaged for his thousand-year Reich. And actually, his even bigger designs for the SS, which was to almost be a state within the state. So what did they do to the castle structure here? Did they change it much? Did they turn this into a super modern military HQ? What alterations did they make? Uh, this is much more like back to the Teutonic Knights. That's what Himmler was going for. He was like, I want to build a myth, drawing back on the evolution and traditions of Germanic society to tap into that, but put it up on steroids and militarize it essentially even more. And so the whole castle has a certain Teutonic feel to it anyway. And then one of the big things they did was they brought in a, a hall of the supreme leaders where there were going to be proper meetings and there were 12 pillars to represent almost like the knights of the round table. Himmler was interested in English mythology too. I mean, borrowing stuff all over the place. They restructured that, repurposed the room and rebuilt it to reflect that. 
they had another room which was going to have an eternal flame to all members of the SS. They had old rooms put into the floor and tiles. It was funny because they even did fake facades made of plaster to make the brickwork look even older than it was, where the brickwork was more modern, to make it back to this gothic style. So it was just fascinating in terms of uncovering the psychology of Himmler and what he envisaged for the SS and how long they were thinking in terms of the future, how long this was going to serve as the epicenter of the SS and their ideology. There was going to be a store place for every death's head ring of every fallen SS officer. And of course, again, the sacred blood sacrifice was really important to maintaining that vision. But at the core of the whole thing was selecting bits of history from here and there and mishmashing them together and plastering over things as well. Although it was coherent to them, it was picking and choosing at history too. It was a bit of a bluff, really, too. Which, of course, the Nazis did in their propaganda as well. Absolutely. And this idea of canalising an already existing stream in German identity was what Goebbels was up to as well. You know, they're all just all at the same thing, really. You, you take this little stream of identity, which has some truth and resonance, and the Nazis were very apt at expanding that and building their propaganda around grains of identity and truth that existed in German society, but then pushing their own vision onto that too. It's buildings like that, isn't it, that you can really start to see where someone can form a sense of being indestructible and definitely a king, a leader, a hero in their own time. For you, when you were there, you make it sound like Himmler's Camelot. Did it really project that kind of power standing in those rooms? You came away with a really glad sense that that organisation was defeated. That's what it projected, because it was dark. And as I said, yeah, it is a bit like this Castle of Camelot. It's knocking on those themes. I don't know. I just came away with a big sense of being glad that they've been defeated. And also just the sense of the grandiosity of their vision. They were really sure that they were building the Thousand Year Reich. And the SS was going to become a state within a state. This was him as a little pet project. A lot of the work that was done under the SS was done by conscript labour from camps and stuff like that. It had those evil machinations running all the way through the structure. Yeah, and you're absolutely right to use the word dark and evil here because there was a concentration camp on site. Yeah, there wasn't much evidence of that, but the workshops were outside the walls and you could still see those. And the team were able to match some of the old imagery with that. So it was interesting. It was always nice about the series. You could stand in places and then it'd grab the archive and you'd be transposed into that place 70 years ago. One of the best ones was we did Third Reich's train network and a lot of it in Poland looking at the transportation of the Jews to the camps. But this particular one was about the invasion of Poland. And I was able to stand at a small station which would have been a huge amount of actual track. It was logistically important. And Hitler had stopped there during the invasion of Poland and they had a reel of him. You could actually stand exactly where he had stood and walk that way. So sometimes you just had these little weird canny ways where they had a great archive and you'd actually be standing in the same place and then in the next frame when they put it together you're like that's pretty unreal to think that that was an interesting thing about the series walking in real history almost bringing it alive for me that was one of the most fascinating things about nazi megastructures that you were able to take us as viewers through those disturbing steps in history by viewing these buildings that like you say were meant to be around to support a thousand year reich and i don't think that any building epitomizes this more than number one on your list, which doesn't need much of an introduction. It's the eagle's nest, that most exorbitant 50th birthday present to Hitler that stood almost 2,000 metres above sea level. Yeah, and when it was built, it had the highest elevator in the world. Wasn't it a gold elevator as well? Oh yeah, apparently so. 
But then Hitler wasn't too keen on it because he was afraid of heights. So that was fascinating. And again, that's been blown up, the eagle's nest and the Berghof. So you've got the eagle's nest, which is even higher. And then you've got this Berghof, was his country Bavarian residence. And I actually went around the Berghof, but it was blown up, I think, after the war to stop Nazis coming back to it. There's not much there. But again, when you recreate it, I was actually standing in where Hitler's living room was. And he had this amazing open plan room with a big, massive window, which you looked out onto these beautiful, beautiful Bavarian Alps. That was uncanny. And of course, there was the SS guard right beside it. Big blockhouse, 200 SS stormtroopers waiting there to defend them and loads of different checkpoints up the hill to the area. That area was the home of Nazism and they all lived around them, all the big henchmen. And then the population were very supportive and you really got a sense of the centre of the Nazi regime from that one. And in many respects, that was where I probably learned more about these civilian structures like Wevelsberg and Berghof, Eagle's Nest, because it wasn't battlefield. It was more regime. You got an insight into their mentality. You got an insight into their lives. You got an insight into how the system worked and the training and the security. And I suppose for me, those ones stand out probably because I learned more rather than doing the battlefield stuff, which I knew anyway and was sort of saying. Yeah, I suppose you get to see the seats of power and the delusions behind that power as well. If you've got a building like that so far up on the mountains with a golden elevator, it's astonishing, isn't it? It is, yeah, it was absolutely amazing. And one of the nice things was, not all the time because the way the shoot works, but I was really lucky at that one because James Holland, the British historian, he was there and he'd done the Eagle's Nest bit and I came in to do the Burkhoff and there was an overlap of half a day and James said, I'm going to take you down to this cafe, right? And the Eagle's Nest was probably 2,000 metres above us. And then steep drop down into this grassy valley, but very steep, very small valley. And this typical Bavarian house at the end of the valley. And the reason Hitler loved the area was he wrote Mein Kampf there. It was his retreat. When he was there writing Mein Kampf, he used to walk down from the Berghof and go to this little cafe which he loved. And I can't remember the name of this dessert. It's got a massive name, like Conning Weinstein Strubel. He used to order one of these a day. And it's this huge profiterole. I mean, massive. It's the size of a small poster box or a tin of biscuits, round circular tin of biscuits. It is literally that size. Cut in half, filled with cream and covered in black currant compote. And Hitler used to walk down. He'd be scribbling away Mein Kampf and then walk down for afternoon tea of one of these King Weinstein Strubels or whatever they're called. And I just thought that was amazing. We were sitting there eating that with the crew and a bunch of Bavarian guys literally in lederhosen drinking beer beside us. So that was an interesting insight and I always thank James for providing that. Well, Paddy, you've disturbingly followed in the footsteps and by the sounds of it, you've also followed in the eating habits as well. Did it taste good? Yeah, it was too much. But it was amazing that Hitler would actually eat that stuff because he was a vegetarian, non-smoking and all. Apparently he loved this. So yeah, no, it was good. But that was one of these little insights you get, especially if someone's got that depth of knowledge. It's just fascinating. And then interestingly, Martin Bormann, who takes over the whole Berghof complex and he organises it because he wants to control access to Hitler and be in Hitler's good books at the same time. Once the war's kicked off, or even a little bit before that, he goes down to the family that run the cafe and he's like, right, I want you to just serve Hitler and to be an exclusive place. And they go, no. And he goes, well, I'm taking it over then. I'm and doing it and they go no and he goes right you're going to a concentration camp and he actually sent them to a concentration camp and in the cafe they have the letter of them resisting writing back saying to martin borman we're not giving you the cafe they survived the concentration camp but this is the kind of dark power you were dealing with that is absolutely fascinating isn't it if you can't control hitler's tea room then the people who own it are going to be sent off it's just the sheer corruption of power at every single level and i think actually that's what your series really helped get across to the viewers. 
the sheer scale of what they were trying to achieve, but also that really quite disturbing level of sickly corruption that ran all the way through and the egomaniacs that ran the Third Reich. And working towards the Fuhrer, Hitler probably wouldn't have even known about what Bormann was trying to do and probably wouldn't, I don't see why he would authorise it if he knew. These are Germans, Munich Germans. So it goes to show you how things can go ski with if you don't have the transparency and checks and balances in place anyway. Absolutely, and the corrupting all power of fascism and intolerance, even if you disagree slightly. Paddy, thank you so much for taking us on a journey through your top five Nazi megastructures. Is there going to be another series? No, I think they've done seven series now. And there was two things. One is that as we went on through the series, the obvious structures became more difficult to find. And so you're going back to some of the battlefield things, which are more difficult to tell a story from because they're not as big and mega structure So I think that they were starting to get towards the end of the barrel of what they could actually use. And the other thing is there are things that they can still be used, but they're in dodgy countries. And so getting crews in and presenters in was more difficult than other places. So there are some things out there that could be done, but not safely at the moment. It's been very successful. It's a good format. Well, that leads me to my next question. Where can we see and hear more from Patrick Bury? In relation to the history, for the moment, I don't know, yourself and I might be working on something interesting, but for the moment, I'm focused on counterterrorism. So we'll see. We shall see. Well, I think we'll definitely get you back on to History Hit to talk more about your project on counterterrorism. And we look forward to seeing you on the screens of History Hit sometime soon. Thank you so much, Paddy. Absolute pleasure, James. Thanks for having us as well. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hip. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app.
So give it a go. I know you're going to love it.